0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I'm Paul R. Henlicke.
0: Today on the show, we will be discussing Reinhold Niebuhr's The Nature and Destiny of Man, Volume 1. There is a sequel, but we will not be getting into it today. So, Dad back in my uh, first job out of college, I had, it must have been your old copy of The Nature and Destiny of Man. I think both volumes bound in one. And I remember bringing it to work with me and placing it virtuously on my desk. And, you know, I just graduated from college with a theology and philosophy degree. And I really, 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 really intended to read it. Also, I thought I would look cool and smart if I read it. And I never did. (laughs) I couldn't make any headway with it. And then over the past four years of doing Queen of the Sciences, you have more than once remarked in passing, we should do a future episode on Reinhold Niebuhr's The Nature and Destiny of Man. And I felt that um, the destiny was closing in upon me, that sooner or later I was going to read the darn thing. So finally, you talked me into it and um, I have i have now read volume one, not yet volume two, maybe next year. So dad, why uh, actually the probably deeper question is why did I get the idea that this was a really important book to read? I have a feeling you have something to do with it, or I would not have spontaneously brought it to work with me and placed it on my desk and thought it would make me look cool and smart. <laughs> also what a dork I was.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think at that age, we're all kind of sending signals to the world of what we would like to be perceived as. So we'll give you a pass on that. Sarah. Well, thank you. You know, uh, I had never heard of Reinhold Niebuhr when, as an innocent, well, relatively innocent uh, (laughs) freshman, I attended Bard College uh, in upstate New York. And uh, there was a course entitled The Conservative Mind in America, taught by a, a Jewish professor named Penkauer, if my memory serves me. And uh, I thought that would be an interesting course to take. This was 1970 and conservatives were not very popular people in the uh, in the throes of the civil rights movement, the urban riots and the war in Vietnam and the anti-war protests and the impending um, scandal of Watergate. Uh, And so I was curious to understand conservative thought. And uh, much to my surprise, there appeared on the list of possible topics for a term paper, Reinhold Niebuhr's Nature and Destiny of Man. And of course, being uh, theologically interested, I seized on the opportunity to read a book and write a term paper on a theologian, though I knew nothing about Niebuhr. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so there I was, 18 years old at Bard College, a very funky uh, place, by the way, very (laughs) bohemian. And, uh, And I poured myself into reading this demanding volume. And it was an education for me. It was absolutely an education for me. And I remember even my professor, was sufficiently pleased with my paper that he gave me a good grade. I think I got an A minus or something like that uh, out of this. And of course, I argued that he was not a conservative. He was prophetic in the biblical sense of the word, (laughs) you know, but that was the spirit of the times and so forth. I just want to say that. Um, And then just a few more biographical anecdotes about Niebuhr for me. Uh, I didn't you know, pay much attention to Niebuhr through much of my rest of my college and and seminary education. Though, I he was always in the back of my mind. And, and reviewing the nature of man for this episode, I realized uh, some themes from him that have stayed with me that we'll get to in passing. Uh, but I remember uh, a couple of uh, uh, interactions. Uh, Professor Tom Driver of uh, Ill Repute, whom you've heard me mention <laughs> in past the past episode on experience, I once heard him bitterly remark that Reinhold Niebuhr killed the social justice movement. Oh. That's what his claim. Yes, that was his claim. Now, this is a man that from the 1920s onward almost uniquely spoke out against American racism and uh, uh, bent himself over thinking about how the liberation of African American people would come about uh, in the United States, um, which we'll mention uh, later on. And this was a man who uh, uh, joined the civil rights movement in the 1960s, Uh, publicly supported it, and Martin Luther King, Jr. And he was also one of the first and most outspoken critics of the war in Vietnam. So how on earth he is identified, quote, as a conservative, close quote, in the pejorative sense of the word, and uh, how Tom Driver thinks he killed the social justice movement. What he killed was the utopianism of the American liberal social gospel movement. But he tried to refound the struggle for greater justice in society on a a deeper basis, as we'll talk about. And I think the vindication of that view was finally uh, when I heard James Cone, the black theologian, pioneer black theologian, talk about how important Niebuhr's first great book, Moral Man and Immoral Society, was to his own formation. Uh, You know, the other thing in our circles is that Niebuhr makes an awful lot of critical comments about Martin Luther and the Lutheran, uh, some of the uh, features of the Lutheran theological tradition. Uh, But I think we have to recognize that um, he was highly dependent on the German theologian Ernst Trelsch for Ah. these opinions about Luther and Lutheranism. And so it's really his critiques are pretty derivative. And I think we can almost bracket that when in fact Niebuhr's uh, attempt to retrieve the doctrine of original sin and make it fruitful for thinking about uh, the struggle for greater justice in society uh, and his corresponding suspicion of human reason um, as, as uh, naively unaware of its captivity to unconscious powers, uh, and even at the worst, its willingness to sell itself to the highest bidder, are themes that are, that are profoundly Lutheran uh, in their ancestry. And I'll, we'll mention some others as we go along.
0: That That's actually really helpful because I was struck I w- as I was reading it how often he singles out Luther and critiques him. And most of the time I was kind of like, huh, OK, yeah I, like I, I sort of saw the point. But the larger argument he was making also sounded to me so deeply Lutheran at its roots. So I, I was a little bit wondering about the disconnect. There was one critique I found actually extremely insightful. And I'd, I'd be willing to say that uh, Niebuhr had something on Luther there, but I'll save that till we get to that point in the in the book.
1: Well, you've just read the first volume, The Nature of Man. So why don't you give us your impressions of the volume?
0: Well... So here's my first impression, and maybe this will be a good gateway into your giving us a little bit more about Niebuhr himself and the intellectual world he's coming from, as well as what he's trying to do with this book. Because as I I read it, I had this sort of feeling like I was doing something vaguely naughty by reading a sweeping intellectual history. (laughs) And I realized (laughs) that something in my own education, somewhere along the line, made me feel a sort of innate distrust toward an attempt to, you know, boil down the essence of all the major movements of Western civilization from the Greeks to the present um, in order to, you know, in a paragraph say, and here's how they got their take on humanity all wrong. And here's how they got their take on humanity all wrong. And <laughs> so there's something about the project itself that I realized I had internalized, you're not supposed to do this, which... Um, you know, there there could be some appropriate epistemic humility and the ability to master all this. But at the same time, if you can't have a big picture overview of what's going on and synthesize a lot of stuff, I mean that is what intellectual work is supposed to be. So I was both curious about where exactly I got that from, but also just what what it meant for Niebuhr to do that kind of work. It must have been before those sort of, I guess, metanarratives were highly unfashionable. But I have to say, I guess this is my other point, is that the story seemed extremely familiar to me. Even though I had never read this book before, it must have also been in the air, or it must be the assumed metanarrative that even people who reject metanarratives take for granted in the theological tradition. So I was just wondering, did he inherit this? Was it already well established? Did he break new ground did he pioneer it? And how well has it stood up to scrutiny? So that those are a pretty gigantic set of questions, but I, I think they're important to know how to engage with the book going forward, and maybe you can tell us something about his own intellectual background to understand what he's trying to do here.
1: Yeah, I'll give a sh- I'll take a shot at that, Sarah, but first let me make a few comments about sweeping meta narratives and such. Um he was deeply dependent, Niebuhr was deeply dependent again, on Ernst Trelsch and Trelsch's infamous historicism. And if you think that it's history all the way up and all the way down, nothing but history, that the realm of being, eternal being is discredited, there is nothing but the flux of becoming. And uh, if there's a method to the madness, you have to look for patterns in the in the flux, in the flow of history. And so the search for types uh, and, and doing intellectual history by means of typologies uh, is, is what comes out of this 19th century into the early 20th century German historicism, which Trelsch takes radically, you know, right down to the bitter dregs.
0: That's also interesting because Reinhold's brother H. Richard Niebuhr is very famous for his typologies of Christ and culture.
1: Exactly, and 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 sometimes people say when you compare H. Richard to Reinhold, H. Richard was the intellectual. <laughs> H. Richard was the real deep scholarly type, and uh, Reinhold was more the preacher, publicist, polemicist, and as uh, public intellectual whereas uh, H. Richard was kind of the private scholarly Yale type of uh, uh, historical theologian. But they did have in common, they were, you know, they they come out of the old German Reform Synod, which eventually merged into the United Church of Christ. And that was like in Europe, the Prussian Union Church.
0: Oh, (laughs) we're all supposed to break out in hives. Good Lutherans when we hear that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> when uh, when the king of Prussia forcibly united, reformed in Lutheran uh, confessions in that region around Berlin, Brandenburg, Berlin. But they come out of this this uh, tradition, so it's a union, a Protestant union kind of background, where both Luther and Calvin had influence. Uh, But really, it's also where the 19th century historical theology uh, really had its its zitzem Leben, its situation in life. This is where they're coming from. And the flower of this tradition uh, is Ernst Trelsch. And and that's where Niebuhr inherits this kind of uh, idea that you can uh, look to patterns in history, to, uh, to find a map of your way through the, the sheer uh, ex, exuberant, extravagant flux of becoming, which is historical experience. And I think then, Sarah, and let me turn us back to you now with this question. I think the basic root of the whole narrative is that in the 16th century, there was an alliance between Renaissance humanism, and uh, christian reformation and this alliance uh, uh, was there in all the major reformers in swingley calvin luther and melanchthon Uh, they all shared uh, a humanist uh, interest in going back to the original sources a humanist interest in language as the formation of being And therefore, the study of languages for knowledge of of reality. And then from there, uh, a renewed interest in the history and development of humanity. And all of these came into their approaches to theology uh, that uh, entailed Reformation. But since the 16th century, Niebuhr sees Renaissance and Reformation diverging from one another. Uh, to the harm of each, uh, each going their separate way. Renaissance finally flourishing in contemporary secularism and naturalism uh, and wooden empiricism uh, and religion becoming increasingly uh, idealistic, utopian, uh, discursive only without reference to empirical realities, Increasingly strident uh, in its effort to maintain what is human in the iron cage of the modern world, how does that sound for for a kind of a capsule summary of the meta narrative Niebuhr gives us? <laughs>
0: Well, that sounds exactly right, though. I mean, as I read it, for him, it's even deeper that in some sense, all of Western civilization is the ongoing battle between the Greco-Roman heritage and the Judeo-Christian heritage. And I don't think he simplistically chooses the Judeo-Christian side over the Greco-Roman side. And I mean, it would be false in any account to disentangle the two very sharply because they wound up around each other the whole way through. But it seems like what he's saying is that the Renaissance is the maybe the attempt to reassert Greco-Roman thought ways um, divorced or extracted from the Judeo-Christian overlay. And then a certain, I don't know, maybe the fanaticism of religion is its attempt to, as you say, live only in heaven and not attend to, you know, the this worldly concerns that a you know a pagan heritage is concerns. with. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Again, it's it's pretty sweeping. But I, I guess I'm curious why for him it's primarily the divorce of Renaissance and Reformation. Why is it there for me? That's I guess in the the usual meta narratives I hear it happens a little later. It's more like the Enlightenment is somehow categorically different from the Renaissance. And if that's the case, then it seems to me the story of human rapid human technological advance is maybe um, not sufficiently taken into account as we talk through the intellectual and spiritual changes that follow.
1: Yeah, um, I think, again, to point out, the magisterial reformers were all humanists. Luther, Melanchthon, Calvin, Zwingli... They're all humanists, and humanism is a methodology, studia, uh, studia humanitatis, the study of humanity. That's humanism, and to, because the human being is the a- animal having language, if you want to understand human beings, the first course of study is language. You've got to understand how language works, and what what makes Renaissance so useful to the reformers. Uh, is that it's a weapon against the predominance of uh, metaphysical scholasticism, which is totally preoccupied with ontological questions, penetrating into the mysteries of God, uh, and speculating in, un, in for the reformers uh, ways that that leave the language of the Bible far behind, and go off uh, on on paths uh, that are not salutary. Uh, So, in the 16th century, Renaissance and Reformation were allied, for the most part, because they shared a mutual interest in leaving scholasticism behind. That's what united Erasmus and Luther in the beginning. And then they began to diverge, and actually the quarrel between Erasmus and Luther uh, over the substance of Christian theology is the first indication of the looming divorce that Niebuhr sees beginning there and then proceeding through the Enlightenment and on to the present time. Uh, and now, as to the Enlightenment, let's, let's, let me say a little bit more biographically about Niebuhr. Coming out of the 19th century, he is educated as a 19th century liberal Protestant And he has the problem inherited from the philosophy of Immanuel Kant of the gulf between nature and spirit. Uh, There's a profound concern in the early Niebuhr to save human personality from what Max Weber called the iron cage of modern naturalism and the emerging rule of technology, technocracy. And so the 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 solution inherited from Immanuel Kant and 19th century liberal theology is a Christianized version of ethical idealism. Every day, in every way, uh, the world gets a little bit better because we're becoming more civilized, more rational, and we're letting the ought predominate over the is. Uh, the way things ought to be is gradually reforming the way things are and so forth. So this whole idealistic utopian tradition of uh, that Christianity is a matter of embracing ideals like love, and uh, patiently, steadfastly, earnestly working to civilize and humanize us in the spirit of Christian love, sometimes called the white man's burden <laughs> in the 19th Right. No, really, the, that was the Christian rationalization of colonialism.
0: Well, I know. I know. It's just that I, I love it that up up until you said that, uh, I'm sure the uh, there are many, many people in the modern West who would say, yes, of course, what's wrong with that? <laughs> and then you recharacterize and like, oh, oh, maybe we need to rethink this.
1: Well, what really complicated the whole project was Charles Darwin, uh, because out of the Descent of species and uh, and and the origins of man, you know his major books on evolution. Quickly emerged this kind of picture of nature as red in tooth and claw. William James, the American pragmatist, talks about boas and crocodiles. <laughs> the world is 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 the world of nature is teeming with reptilian life. Waiting to prey upon us, you know, and 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 so human beings are still stuck in animal, irrational animal passions. Human beings prey upon one another like animals. They haven't been civilized. They haven't uh, grasped the ideal of love. They need to be educated, and so for the young Niebuhr, this is Darwin complicates tr- tremendously the uh, the simple ethical idealism of 19th century theology. But the point is the dualism in the human being between mind and matter, ideal and real, uh, forms much of the early Niebuhr's thinking until his dramatic break with idealism that occurred in the late 20s while he was writing his first great book, Moral Man and Immoral Society.
0: Well, I think you need to follow up and, and tell us what that is, because that's very intriguing. And I think still the, the philosophy in the air is mind versus matter and real versus ideal. And there is no less utopianism floating around than there ever has been.
1: Well, because if you are in the humanist tradition stemming from the Renaissance and also partly from the Reformation, right, because the Reformation too insisted that human beings were made in the image of God for likeness to God, though they have fallen from this destiny and cannot, uh, by pulling themselves up with their own bootstraps, cannot regain it. So they're in need of a redemption. So that's kind of the tension from the beginning between Renaissance and Reformation. But philosophically, the young Niebuhr finds a, a way through the alternative between idealism and uh, naturalism. And that middle way is pragmatism, particularly the writings of William James, who wrote, you know, a great book on religion, the varieties of religious experience. And in that book, William James was trying to find a, a, a future for religion after the collapse under the force of naturalism and the advance of the scientific worldview, what what could religion be? And, you know, this to simplify James uh, very much, uh, he came to believe that because of our deeply reptilian nature, the reptile is not out there, the reptile is in us. <laughs> right? And so we are just like animals, trying to figure out how to get from one safe spot to the next safe spot. And so the focus of philosophy should be on action uh, in a world in which survival cannot be taken for granted. And intellectuals, philosophers should pragmatically worry about the consequences of ideas uh, in the real world instead of browbeating people with utopian ideals that that have no traction with them who are living in the real world, uh, uh, the reptilian world, so to speak, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but of course, where does that leave any hopes for greater justice in society? Where does that leave any hope for the redemption of the sin-sick soul. Uh, And uh, James was really perplexed by this problem. And he finally concluded by saying, there can be uh, people with a kind of madness who believe the unbelievable and just so find the courage to change the way things are. That's William James. They believe the unbelievable and just so find the courage to change the way things are. And Reinhold Niebuhr picked up that motif from James, and he Christianized it with Paul's idea of being a fool for Christ.
0: Okay, but how is that not just a utopian with a little cross on his shoes? (laughs) I'm curious, because you, when we were preparing for this, you mentioned that um, well, and, and as you've said so far, that Niebuhr was became an enemy of idealism and utopianism and was critical of Barth in many ways for, you know, insisting on principle and not looking at the real life consequences of things in the world. So, yeah. So what does a fool for Christ who dreams the impossible, how, how does that not become another fanatical utopian who destroys everything in the name of saving the world?
1: Yeah, right. Because the fool for Christ is the one who... Uh, who voluntarily bears the suffering that the the perpetrator, the violator, inflicts uh, in the name of the perpetrator's redemption for Niebuhr. It's a very Christological idea. You're a fool for Christ because Christ was, first of all, the fool uh, who, uh, rather than retaliate, uh, uh, s- submitted to the injustice and the suffering in order to redeem the uh, perpetrators and the violators. Uh, So it's a deeply Christological idea. And of course, you can see that when the young Martin Luther King was reading this in the uh, uh, 1940s, when he was a a student, a theological student, much of uh, King's own philosophy of nonviolent civil disobedience stems from this the this uh, stream of ideas from James through Niebuhr to him.
0: Ah, I, I was actually going to guess what I said is that if that was behind the nonviolent civil rights demonstrations. So, okay. All right. And that, you know, and then I guess I get if you're taking the pragmatic approach of judging something by its fruits, then in fact, that kind of um suffering patient witness, but that is nevertheless strong in the Lord was indeed very fruitful and very powerful in breaking down what had been so ugly and controlling in in that aspect of American society.
1: Yeah and and, and what it's what makes it so different from 19th century liberal utopianism was that that uh, liberal theology of the 19th century had become a complacent belief in automatic, progress, that civilization was proceeding on its own. And this, of course, is becomes a very comforting ideology for the elites and the ruling classes who are presiding over this cultural development, I would say, to this
0: very day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, actually, one thing that Niebuhr pointed out that was helpful to me is that dispensationalism is a heresy that can only arise on Judeo-Christian soil. And listeners know how deeply I despise dispensationalisms and think they're incredibly destructive. But they're destructive because, like all heresies, they're a derivative corruption of a true idea, which is that um, uh, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, and there is a a beginning, and there is an end, and there is something that. Happens in some sort of meaningful narrative in between, and the dispensationalist heresy is uh, claiming to know far better than you actually do what each stage means and where exactly you are on the thing, and probably extracting fear and money out of people based on your secret knowledge of of our progress along the way. But. um, He did help me realize that if you are going to take a non-cyclical view of history, and therefore you are going to have one that is linear in the sense of there is history and there is movement from protology to eschatology, then... You do have to engage in some kind of assessment of what's happened and where you're going, and the the virtue here again is um, modesty in what you know and um, using it as an occasion for foolish suffering, not for a radical will to power, um, as or or a complacent ideology of well things will get better anyway, so I don't need to shift in any way.
1: Very good, Sarah. And you know the only tweak I would that now this is me speaking, not Niebuhr. Uh, and that you you quoted Martin Luther King: "The arc of history uh, is long, but it bends in the direction of justice." Uh, the only tweak I would make is to turn that into a divine passive: "The arc of history is long, but it is bent uh. in the direction of justice," because the, and that signals that the the importance, the historical importance of the intervention the apocalyptic intervention of the gospel. Uh, Martin Luther King's ministry, in my view, was an apocalyptic intervention in history. It was something that no one expected that was inserted into the maw of American life in the 1950s and 60s. uh, And uh, it, it bent the direction of American history. Now, that means minus those gospel interventions history can bend itself right back into the posture curvatus and say curved into oneself as the center of the universe
0: yeah and i you know i think that's really helpful because the the modern envy of the divine passive (laughs) is that why should we wait for God to do the bending? Why not bend it ourselves and let's seize the power because we can. And I think, you know, the, the underbelly of the, you know, story from the Renaissance and Reformation onwards through enlightenment modernity is that the surface level story is freedom and love but the the underbelly story is uh, increasing capacity for control and because you can you must I mean I, I Niebuhr's writing at a time where obviously the the greatest fear is um, the level of control that Soviets and other communist countries exercised over people but um, as listeners will no doubt, be unsurprised to hear me say he hadn't seen nothing yet. <laughs> the the rage for control has not ceased in any way. And as as we uh, continue to, you know, to to look into all the ways that we are truly reptilian in a Freudian, Darwinian or Nietzschean kind of way, then our response is almost always for more control. Uh, nobody really, I don't think, trusts love and freedom anymore, even if, if we say it piously. And so <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think this is a time to start talking about original sin, huh? Because that's the other major burden of this book.
1: Well, you know, and permit me here just to read a brief passage from Moral Man and Immoral Society, because I think, you know, I read this passage, reread this passage preparing for this podcast, and uh, it made me think of those uh, yellow jackets in Paris. And it made me think of the uh, truckers in Montreal or Quebec, rather, in Quebec City. Uh, this is what Niebuhr writes, those who would eliminate the injustice, the the fools for Christ, are therefore always placed at the moral disadvantage of imperiling its peace, even if the efforts towards justice are made in the most pacific terms. They will claim that it is dangerous to disturb a precarious equilibrium and will feign to fear anarchy as the consequence of the effort. This passion for peace need not always be consciously dishonest, since those who hold special privileges in society are naturally inclined to regard their privileges as their rights and to be unmindful of the effects of inequality upon the underprivileged. They will have a natural complacency towards injustice." every effort to disturb the peace which incorporates the injustice will therefore seem to them to spring from unjustified malcontent. They will furthermore be only partly conscious of the violence and coercion by which their privileges are preserved and will therefore be particularly censorious of the use of force or the threat of violence by those who oppose them. The force they use is either the covert force of economic power, or it is the police power of the state, seemingly sanctified by the supposedly impartial objectives of the government which wields it, but nevertheless amenable to their interests. They are able in perfect good faith to express abhorrence of the violence of a strike by workers, and to call upon the state in the same breath to use violence in putting down the strike.
0: Wow. The more things change, the more they stay the same.
1: (laughs) You needed something?
0: Yeah, that really reminds me of uh, Hannah Arendt. We talked about last year, I think, uh, her book on violence, because she says, you know, look, at some point, violence is going to happen if if, uh, concerns are not addressed. And yeah, it's terrible. We are are right to dislike it and oppose it because violence almost never produces the result it intends. But the reason why people resort to violence is because of exactly everything Niebuhr just described there, that um, patient, complacent, ideological suffocation of what real people are going through and nothing else will allow them to be heard. Unless, I I should say, unless there is an apocalyptic intervention of a Strong nonviolent movement, but again, I think we call you call that apocalyptic because it is so rare that um, history is bent that way rather than bending itself with violence
1: as as listeners may perhaps remember when we sp- spoke the special podcast on Putin's war uh, against Ukraine, I spoke in it about the arrogance, complacency, and naivete of the West that Uh, in part, precipitated this disaster. Arrogance, complacency, and naivete. And rereading Niebuhr for this episode reminded me of where I learned (laughs) these delusions of our elite classes here in these United States. Arrogance, it's our way, and the rest of the world is catching up, whether they know it or not. Complacency. Uh, our progress is so manifest and powerful. Of course, people are going to want to hop on this train, and naivete. And of course, no one would dare to try to disturb our peace. Really,
0: right? So, okay. So, I think this is a time to bring up my my one place. I thought Niebuhr uh, had made a really good point against Luther or the Lutheran tradition because it, it's sort of the tipping point from the justice question to the sin question, and Basically, what he said is that... In the Lutheran lands, um, specifically Germany, I don't think he really knows anything about Scandinavia, the spiritual awareness that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God was so profound. And he he even says, gives them credit, like, yes, this is a spiritually profound insight. Um, the problem was that it has this leveling effect that um, dampens down the, although all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, some bear more actual, Guilt in history than others for wrongdoings that occur. And so I thought this was very insightful. You can have a doctrine of sin that actually mutes the reality of guilt in a very Um, well, unjust, but ultimately spiritually damaging kind of way. And then Niebuhr said, I I thought this was rather comical. He said the Anglo-Saxon world of Britain was always um, spiritually inferior and shallow compared to Lutheranism. However, because of that, they developed a much better justice system because they were more at ease with the idea that guilt is unevenly distributed. And that was more of the the focus of the legal developments, rather than this spiritual insight into the equality of sin. And um, I I don't I don't know enough about Luther in his you know. Um, legal thinking to comment on that. But um, I can see how that would have a devastating effect in the you know, natural drift of history that if you can just tell everyone that they're sinners, then you can prevent anything from ever changing. You can prevent the recognition of unequally distributed guilt because you can always just recur back. But Niebuhr also makes the point is that if you have only a a recognition of unequal distribution of guilt, then inevitably what's going to happen is you will have class warfare or ethnic warfare because this class or or this group has more guilt than another. And all that will happen then is that the oppressed who think that they're innocent will rise up and throw over the guilty class. And then the, the oppressed class will become the oppressor class. And of course, that process is illustrated again and again and again in the Old Testament.
1: Yeah, and the rest of human history, by the way, as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, but I'm saying it's right there in our canonical scripture. This is exactly what happens.
1: Yeah, I think you know. Just uh, a quick note on that: uh, Luther's own distinction is always to parse the question of justice, and therefore also of, of culpability, um, either in the perspective corum deo before God in relation to God, and corum hominibus or corum mundo, mundum. Uh, mundo, um, before the world or before humanity. So, uh, as I used to say to students, if in a moment of wrath I pull out my revolver and aim the gun at you hate, hate with hatred in my heart to eliminate you from this earth, and the gun misfires and the, the shot does not go off, the crime of your murder has not been committed, but the sin of murder certainly has been committed. That's quorum Deo, the sin, quorum hominibus, uh, the failure of the gun to go off, uh, reduces the charge to attempted murder rather than mur- murder in the first degree right, or right. something like that. And that's how Luther sorted out the relationship between civil justice, worldly justice, social, social justice, and justice in relationship to God. Sinfulness applies strictly to the relationship of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But quorum hominibus, in relation to human beings, it makes a great deal of difference whether you're a perpetrator or a victim.
0: Right, and right. no
1: amount of the knowledge of sinfulness should obliterate the difference between the perpetrator and the victim.
0: Right, right, right. But I, I think the point also is very valid that unless you keep a quorum deo perspective, then the the class warfare of, of the guilty versus the innocents is the inevitable outcome.
1: Yeah, and just to, I could very briefly apply that again to the, the new Cold War with Russia. You know, if we we have to be very careful not to succumb to hatred of Russians, even to hatred of Putin. Because if we do, then the policy goal will be to punish Putin and to punish uh, the Russians uh, rather than stopping the aggression and preserving the lives of the victims. Uh, we should think of the relationship here this way, that Western sinful, sinfulness, we're all sinners, the West has precipitated some of this violence with its arrogance, complacency, and naivete. We are not simply righteous and the Russians are not simply the children of darkness. And we shouldn't uh, succumb to that kind of Manichean thinking. But we should recognize corum hominibus here. There is a perpetrator and there is a victim. And love requires us, uh, to the extent of our just powers, to stop the murder and stop there.
0: And I would say, you know, just in terms of the general tenor of things in the U.S. recently, it is equally inaccurate to say that the entire history of, say, the United States is one purely of sin and guilt and that there is nothing else to say about what's happened. I appreciated Niebuhr saying uh, he even on the level of nations, which he is very aware of our nations are dangerous things. He said they're the highest form of egotism, like they're the, the um, largest outward extension of personal ego to this grand stage so he gets that nations are dangerous and he can also say nevertheless it really does make a difference in a nation's history and dealings and justice system whether or not it has some awareness of standing before god and being accountable to god for its behavior and its treatment of its of its subjects or citizens or neighbors
1: he wrote a book later in his life called the irony of american history which is also really interesting in that respect as well because irony was the category he chose, because uh, irony is always about something good going bad or something bad turning out good in surprising ways. You know, uh, you mentioned earlier his uh, critique of Karl Barth. Um, I want to say this about Niebuhr's contribution in the final analysis. He remained very much in the liberal Protestant tradition in the specific sense that the mystery of humanity rather than the mystery of God was always his focal point. He was interested in how resources of the Christian tradition could be retrieved to help uh, this originating problem of of how to both affirm uh, humanity in the special sense of the creature Called by God to be God's covenant partner, and at the same time acknowledge that this creature is capable of tra- horrendous evil, uh, and he drew really above all on Saint Augustine to to uh, make this analysis of the human being with the, I think, really interesting point that only human beings can be sinners. I mean, just think about that for a minute. Only human beings can be sinners. If your pet dog jumps up on the kitchen table to wolf down the Thanksgiving turkey when you were dumb enough to leave the kitchen with the dog in the kitchen, right? The dog is going to get punished for being a dog. Not for being a sinner, right? <laughs> right? And it's your fault for letting the dog act like a dog in a way that you didn't want, right? So you can be angry at the dog, but the dog's just being a dog. That's a, that's a common statement back and forth between your mother and I when the dog <laughs> does something just being a dog.
0: And you know, and then on the flip side, I was talking to someone recently who was a little perplexed by infant baptism because she said, "Well, little children don't sin." And I was like, "Ha. <laughs> You're not a mother. Let me assure you." <laughs> yeah. But right. it is it is remarkable. I mean, parents experience how early and before there is very much agency at all, children exhibit what we recognize as sin and the only reason it's not Terrifying and horrible is because they're helpless, weak, and super cute. But (laughs) yeah, it's there.
1: Right. And we want to, and that's by good design of nature so that we bond with the little uh, son of a guns before they (laughs) they start annoying us. Right. (laughs) Niebuhr's idea was that uh, what makes humans uh, distinct of all the animals, of all the creatures, is the capacity for self transcendence. Which simply means we don't accept our environment as a simple given. Uh, we look at uh, our yard and say, "Gee, would look so pretty to have a rose bush there," or we look at our house and say, uh, "Boy, it would be better if we added another room." Uh, and say, I'm just making silly illustrations of the idea of self-transcendence. Animals simply accept their environment and respond to it—stimuli response. Human beings look at their environment and say, how can I make this more amenable? How can I adapt the environment for human life and flourishing? That's self-transcendence. And that signifies both the human calling to be God's partner in the care and stewardship of the creation, the development of the creation, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, but it, that self-transcendence is also the very same source of sinful pride and thus inventiveness in evil. Uh, so it's, um, self-transcendence is both the dignity um, and, uh, of humanity and it's the source of sinful pride and destructiveness.
0: Yeah, I was struck by uh, this statement of his, which, which sums this all up. The final paradox is that the discovery of the inevitability of sin is man's highest assertion of freedom. And I, I was really interested in how he's, he's, um, you know, renewing and resourcing the traditional Christian Western, especially Christian doctrine of original sin. You know, he dismisses pretty easily the, you know, STD theory of original sin, and it's more... Biological explications that you sometimes get from Augustine, though I think those have been wildly exaggerated in the popular reception. Right. But, um, but he he's said, you know, he says it is. It's kind of like a it's absurd, and so original sin stands in for this. Deeply paradoxical fact that it is precisely because humans can have this self transcendence, can have this really do have this relationship to God, to their own selves, to their environment, that their greatest capacity for love and freedom is the obverse of their capacity for wickedness, evil, corruption assault on the reality itself, as well as the God who made it. And that there's no there's no thinking. And in this world, there's no thinking the one without the other. And that I think that circles back to his critique, which is where the book starts, of all these attempts in Western civilization, various theories and isms to explain humanity. And for him, the reason why they all fail is both because they lack an adequate God dimension, but also because they just want humans to be one thing. And if they can just get people to be one thing understood in one way, then finally we'll be able to fix and address everything. It's it's that um, simplistic optimism of modernity towards control. Like if we just nail down the definition and then everything will be fine. And I think for him, in a weird way, the... Um, the assertion of original sin as simply a fact about who we are is also for us a kind of freedom from these oppressive isms that are trying to nail us down into this you know procrustean bed of what we we must be according to this or that theory
1: yeah of course north korea is a political possibility <laughs> you can you can turn human beings into cookie cutter Uh, images of one another and and line them up in mass assemblies uh, so that you express massive uniformity. But at at what cost does something like that happen?
0: Well, and the reason why those kind of of societies turn the screws culturally is because they have this horrible suspicion that even if everyone's body is in line, they might be thinking things. They are not supposed to think. And we're going to control it all the way down to the level of their thoughts.
1: Absolutely. And that's why self-criticism groups used to be so commonly practiced in in these uh, versions of 20th century totalitarianism.
0: Right, which is just a sick distortion of the confessional.
1: Right, yes, right, which was a quorum Deo relationship, not a quorum hominibus relationship. I I just want to mention one other uh, theme here that is deeply Augustinian and and more particularly Lutheran is Niebuhr's uh, uh, kind of version of the hermeneutics of suspicion which is that human reason uh, is and can be unconsciously captive uh, to inordinate self-love or to, like you said, the nation-state earlier, to forms of collective egotism. And even worse, human reason can sell itself to the highest bidder, which happens a lot now, I think, in scientific research, which has to go in search for funding And and to get the funding from corporations or the government, you know, you have to dance to their tune. So science comes to be an instrument of someone's uh, uh, profit uh, uh, or political purpose. So that suspicion of human reason as it not being the master of man, but rather the servant quite possibly uh, the servant of sinful or inordinate self-love, I think, is a deeply Lutheran idea. But Sarah, I want to, as we're kind of drawing to a close here, what, what are the, some of the most moving passages in uh, this volume of Niebuhr, for me anyway, are the ones about the atonement. Here at last, Niebuhr talks about God. <laughs> <laughs> rather than about the mystery of human beings. Uh, and I should just mention that he, in passing, makes a very interesting critique of theologies that are oriented to the incarnation over against theology oriented to the cross, the judgment, and the justification of sinful humanity. Uh, and that is, uh, I think, uh, something that's... I. I guess I forgot I'd learned that from Niebuhr, but I I actually think that's true. I think that the theology of the incarnation comes as the doxological conclusion of the earliest uh, Christian theology of the resurrection of the crucified, which brings with it uh, the extravagantly divine and creative justification of the sinner. Uh, And then that leads us to the realization that it was God who was in Christ, uh, reconciling the world to himself. But this, I just want to read this passage from uh, the Nature volume. From the standpoint of Christian faith, the life and death of Christ become the revelation of God's character with particular reference to the unsolved problem of the relation of his judgment to his mercy, of his wrath to his forgiveness. Christian faith sees in the cross of Christ the assurance that judgment is not the final word of God to man, but it does not regard the mercy of God as of forgiveness, which wipes out the distinctions of good and evil in history and makes judgment meaningless. All the difficult Christian theological dogmas of atonement and justification are efforts to explicate the ultimate mystery of divine wrath and mercy in its relation to man. The good news of the gospel is that God takes the sinfulness of man into himself and overcomes in his own heart what cannot be overcome in human life, since human life remains within the vicious circle of sinful self-glorification on every level of moral advance.
0: Hmm. That is beautiful. Unsurprisingly, I am very much in agreement that sin is a much bigger problem than finitude and that theologies that are primarily incarnation or, um, sacramentally, uh, sa- I don't want to say sacraments, but sacramentalism, like the highest, the highest, um, compliment you can pay to anything is that it's sacramental or incarnational. <laughs> it, what it, it's, to me, those are always just trying to shore up, um, beleaguered self-esteem and say it's okay it's okay you'll be fine look isn't the world beautiful and your body is fine and and you know we're all
1: god don't make no junk god don't make no junk
0: yeah right which you know is true so far as it goes like i'm not i'm not disputing the goodness of creation or the incarnation or the sacraments or anything like that but i just don't think that is the root problem and i don't think our finitude becomes poisonous to us apart from sin again dogs do not know that they are going to die and do not mourn their finitude. Um, They may be only mourn their lack of access to the Turkey, but that is not a source of existential crisis for them. And um, I think Niebuhr is right to say that it is the the release from our drive towards corruption and control and um, (laughs) self-exaltation as well as self-demonization that is much more at the root of the problem. And it's only through that, that we can have anything like an exalted humanity first in Christ and then later in us when we will be raised out of all of this once and for all.
1: Of course, that would be leading us into volume two on the destiny of man, wouldn't it?
0: Right. So maybe in 2023, we'll get there.
1: Well, I think now you've read volume one. Don't you want to read volume two?
0: Yes, but but um, you know, Dad, I, I have a very low tolerance level for liberal Protestantism, so I could only take it in teeny <laughs> tiny doses. So I'll actually, you know, I have to say one thing: I, I I was able to appreciate it afresh that one of the things that a liberal Protestant theology of this type does is if it can understand itself as serving a missionary purpose of rendering intelligible to the wider society that is not trained in the, you know, pieties and practices of of Christian life is say like, there are resources here that are really important, both to understand the civilization that we've got and the things that we would like to see improved. I think the problem is how easily it starts to serve the polis and be, it's um, not a fool for Christ, but a court jester for the empire, um, where liberal Protestantism ah. maybe does not have as many resources to resist. And I think that's why it's such a an unimpressive movement anymore.
1: Well, it certainly, I mean, there was a time in the first half of the 19th century in which what was called transcendentalism, which is basically popular Kantianism, uh, really caught on fire. Henry David Thoreau, Ralph Waldo Emerson in the United States and all the uh, re- social reform movements they inspired, including abolitionism and temperance and various other things, uh, uh, you know, it did have some momentum at one point in history, uh, but it was pretty much spent. It should have been fully spent uh, in the crucible of the American Civil War. And uh, if Lincoln's second inaugural address had been heated, uh, uh perhaps uh, history in the United States would have gone in a different direction than reconstruction failing and Jim Crow taking its place. Uh, but that's you know, um, that's speculation, I suppose.
0: All right, well, next time on the show we will be discussing James Epistle of Straw question mark.